Our lesson this morning has to do with the mantra of your souls. There's many of us here this morning, and some of you might say, well, I don't know that you know the mantra of my soul. I don't know if you really know what my heart desires in the deepest parts of me, and I would say, I do. And not because I know what I want alone, but because of what the scriptures say. I wonder this morning if you would agree with the words of that great philosopher, Aerosmith, when he said, I just want to stay right here in this moment forever. You know that song. And if you don't, you're more holy than I. But he said, I, I just want to stay right here in this moment forever. There are moments in our lives, there have been moments in your life where you wish you could stay. Maybe it was a meal. Maybe it was a perfect moment in a relationship where everything seemed to be at peace and in balance. Maybe it was an age in your life, a stage in your career. Maybe it was that perfect level of health or that perfect weight. Maybe it's a perfect age. Maybe it was a perfect vacation. I remember having the opportunity with Sarah not that long ago to go to Israel. The worst part about the trip was that I knew about it over a year before we went. I lived in fear for a year. Oh, this amazing trip. Will it ever come? And if it does, will I be well enough to go? Never having lived in fear of any kind in this way, I was afraid maybe I would have an infected tooth of which I'd never had one before. But maybe I would and it would not allow me to go on this trip. Maybe I would be in some sort of an accident and break my leg and wouldn't be able to, to trek the path of Jesus. I would have to stay here in Hagerstown. I literally lived in fear that I wouldn't get to go. And then the day came. I got to go. And it was incredible. Ten days, walking around the Holy Land with my bride, some of my closest friends getting to see the sights of the scriptures. It was absolutely breathtaking. And you know what I thought in those moments? Halfway through the trip, one day <laughs> in five days, this will be over. And it just about ruined the trip for me. I'd waited so long to go. And lived in fear that it wouldn't come at all. And now it had come, and I was afraid that it would be over before I knew it. And the apex of my life would be behind me, and everything else downhill from there. Our lives are lived in fear, and they're lived in longing. And here's what I mean by that. Some of our most frightening fears are that either we'll lose what we've finally secured or we'll never secure that for which we have been promised and so eagerly desire. Think about that. Our most frightening fears, most debilitating emotions are that either we will lose what we have finally secured or we will never secure that which we have been promised and so desperately long for. We want the good place. We want the good meal, we want the good moments, and we want it forever. We don't want it to end, we, we want it to last. We want everything to be just right. We want everything to be in balance. We want everything to be at peace. And that's the Hebrew word, shalom. Peace doesn't simply mean the absence of war, but everything just as it should be. And we don't want everything just as it should be to ever end. We want it for all eternity. I believe that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes was getting to in chapter 3. It'll be on the screen for you. I just want to read just a part of it. We'll jump down to verse 11 in chapter 3. It says, He, speaking of God, has made everything beautiful in its time. And he's just got done saying there's a season for this and there's a season for that. There's a season for things that start and then there's a, things time, or a time for seasons to end. 
There's a time to go to Israel, and there's a time to come back home to Hagerstown. Everything beautiful in its time. And he says in verse 11, as he moves on, also he has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I think part of what he's getting at here is to say that there is a time for everything. There's a time for good things and a time for, for bad things. There's a time for longing for. There's a time for enjoying. And there's a time for fear that those things that you long for and now enjoy will then be taken away. And he says one of the, way, one of the purposes that God has given us that experience of waiting and longing and then fear that it will leave is that he has put eternity into our hearts. Eternity is in our hearts, and that is why we love myths so much. A little bit of a turn here. Stories. Eternity in our hearts. It's why we love a a good epic. The most moving legends, the most moving myths are the ones that declare victory and justice and mercy And peace, so that everyone in the story can do what? Live happily ever after. The most moving stories, that's how they end, right? Happily ever after. Think about that statement. Happily ever after. Almost like shalom, peace. Forevermore. Everything was the way that it was supposed to be for the rest of time. That's how so many stories end. Each of us long for that in our lives, don't we? We just want to stay in that good moment. We want everything to be just as it should and then to stay that way forever. Lore, stories, they are powerful echoes from a distant future that through story garner hope in the present. Stories that we hear that stir up this longing for peace forevermore, happily ever after, is not a story of the past. It's not a reality in the past as much as it is in the future for the Christian. And so every story that we hear that ends happily ever after, stirs up in us this desire for shalom, for us to be happy and ever after just as we were created to be and just as those who are in Christ will experience. And so stories, they evoke hope in us of something we believe to be future and that we believe to be true. That's what this morning's text is really about. And so if you would, Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. The book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Yes, we're back in Hebrews this morning. We've taken a bit of a break. Pastor Chris worked through the great book of Esther there in the Old Testament. Last week, we, we jumped in quickly to a story of, or an idea of what could kill a church, and that would be gossip. But today, we're back in Hebrews. Now, if you'll remember the last sermon that we heard, chapter 6, was of the pastor, the writer of the book of Hebrews, telling us that there's a danger that some of us will become dull of hearing. He says, I've got some things to say about Christ. I've got some things to say about Melchizedek. And then your eyes just glaze over, and so he says, I want, I want you to pay attention. I really, I really want you to lean into this. And he says, basically, those who are in Christ have the spirit of God in them. They are empowered to really listen and to understand. And some of you will fall away. Some of you won't even want to hear these things. But I want you, those who want to, I want you to press in. Don't fall away. Try to understand these things. They're a bit difficult. Ends chapter 6 by saying, we've got the sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. 
hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And there it is. Jesus is the sure anchor for the soul, and he is like the, high, the, the priest Melchizedek. Who in the world is Melchizedek? We're going to work to understand his identity a little bit this morning. And so that's where we're at this morning, Hebrews chapter 7. Let's read verses 1 through 10. This is what the scriptures say. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descendants from Abraham, descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by the one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, we do that now. We, we pause now and we ask that you would bless the reading of your scriptures. Father, we understand in chapter 6 that this is a difficult thing to understand. Father, not just because we are dull of understanding, but because we are dull in our attention. Father, in so many ways we can be distracted. To gaze upon this or to gaze upon that. Things moral, things immoral. And yet you've called us this morning through this great book to look to Jesus. We ask that you would empower us to do that now. We ask that you would help us to understand it by the power of your spirit. And Father, we thank you that you have a son, that you have appointed after the order of Melchizedek, eternal in his dealings with man, trustworthy forevermore. We pray that you would bless this time. We ask it in his name. Amen. What's the point of these 10 verses we've read this morning? Well, I've got it up on the screen for you. What is the text saying? If we're to boil it down, here's what these first 10 verses are saying, and really the entire chapter 7. Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood prescribed in the Mosaic law. Therefore, Jesus, who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, is superior because his priestly accomplishments are themselves eternal. Jesus, therefore, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, is superior because his priestly accomplishments are eternal. There's really two uh, components that I want to lean into, and that's the first, Melchizedek is superior to Levi. Melchizedek is superior to Levi. Then we'll move on to there to see that Jesus is superior to Melchizedek. And finally, we'll understand that Jesus is superior to Melchizedek because the work that he accomplishes, and he accomplishes something great, that work is, in fact, eternal. And so first, let's look at Melchizedek is superior to Levi. You might be asking this morning, who is Levi? Well, Levi uh, is a descendant of Abraham. Abraham is the one that this passage says, receive the promise, receive the blessing from God. Abraham was called out of Ur of Chaldees, and he left 
uh, to follow God's leading. And he came to the very promised land. And, and there he received a promised son, his only son, born of Sarai, which was Isaac, the son of laughter. They're learning about him this morning back in the blue station. And Isaac had two sons. Of, of their names were Jacob and Esau. And uh, Jacob had several sons, 12 to be exact. And his fourth son was Levi. And so Abraham had been given a promise by God. Through you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. That includes your nation. That includes you here this morning. That you, your people group, are blessed through Abraham. How? Because his son, Isaac, had another son, Jacob, whose, later, whose name was later changed to Israel. And Israel had 12 sons, the fourth was Levi. Now, you'll remember that Moses and Aaron were of that very tribe, the tribe of Levi. They were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, specifically through Jacob's fourth son, Levi. In order to be a Hebrew priest, the law required that you be part of that very tribe. And so Moses leading the, the people of God, God appointing Aaron to, also from the tribe of Levi, to be the first high priest. And now all the descendants going through that line. And so that's who Levi is. And our first point this morning is that Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Melchizedek is greater than this priestly, this biblical line of priests for the Hebrews. And while Levi is a fantastic person... And his tribe, a pretty swell tribe, Melchizedek is greater. And so then you ask, well, I didn't know who, Mel who Levi was, and I surely don't know who Melchizedek is. Well, we'll look at him briefly. We first come to hear of this man who's mentioned very little in Genesis chapter 14. And so if you have your copy of God's Word and you're able to, turn back to the first book of the Bible, the, the book of beginnings, Genesis 14. Verses 17 through 20, we read of a story. But let me give you a little bit of background before we read that. So there Abraham, or Abram rather, is living in the land that has been promised to him and to his descendants. And while there, his, his nephew who was with him separated out and uh, began to live in a city called Sodom. You've heard of, the, you've heard of this city before. Now there, were a, uh, there was a group of kings that came together... And they were exacting a bit of a tax on several other cities and nations. And particularly one of them was Sodom. And Lot lived amongst them. But this group of, uh, of nations and kings rebelled against one uh, king in the north. And uh, he gathered up a group of other kings. And they came down and made war. Several kings grouped against another group of kings. And the group from the north was successful. And the name is very hard to say. I've practiced it many times this week. I'm going to just guess his name is Shador Leomer. There we go. Right? Are you impressed? And so this group of kings from the north led by, we'll call him Shay, race down. They defeat this group of, of four nations and kings. One of them was Sodom. And they take spoils. They take their treasure, they take their people, some of them, and they head back north. Well, Abram hears about this, not caring much for these kings, but definitely caring for his nephew, having very few relatives left alive, aside from those who are in his own house. He trains up his men, or he gathers up his trained men, basically puts together an army, and makes a night raid as these kings are celebrating in the evening. And he was successful. He defeated the kings. He got all the treasure and, and loot that had been stolen. And he had, on his way back to his own home near the Oaks of Mamre, he's intercepted. And that's where our story picks up. Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20. It's very brief, but here we go. After his return from the defeat of Shea and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, Abram, and said, 
Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. What's happened here? Abram is coming back victorious. He has his men with him, several hundred And his army, they are carrying back the loot back to the oaks of Mamre. And as they pass by Sodom, out comes the king of Sodom and out comes the king of Salem. And what happens? The king of Salem, Melchizedek, he brings out a blessing for Abraham and for his people. And they celebrate. And not only does he bring out a blessing, or bread and wine, but he also offers a blessing upon Abraham. And he not only blesses Abraham, but reminds Abraham that you were able to be successful. How? Because God Most High, El Elyon, has blessed you this day. And what does Abraham do in response to the blessing that he received? He pays a tithe to him. A tithe of everything that he had been increased by he gives to Melchizedek. This mysterious figure is only mentioned one other time, to my knowledge, in the Old Testament. That's in Psalm 110, and we'll get there in just a moment. But what do we know of this mysterious figure? Well, back in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, it, quoting right out of the Septuagint, quoting right out of the Greek Old Testament, or Greek old copy of the Old Testament, We read in verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Who is Melchizedek? Well, he's the king of Salem. Salem, what does that mean? It means peace. It's that word that we've heard several times this morning already. It means shalom. Melchizedek is the king of peace. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Maybe you've heard of Jerusalem before. Most scholars, most students of the Bible believe that Salem is Jerusalem. Salem, peace. Jerusalem, city of peace. It's interesting that Melchizedek is The king of the city of peace. He's the king of peace. We've heard of a prince of peace before, haven't we? But this king of peace is also a priest of the most high God. This is a very interesting name for God. It's a very interesting name for Yahweh. A name Yahweh had not been given to the people of God yet. But the most high God was recognized by many. It was the God of Adam and Eve. It was the God of Noah, the God of Shem. And now we understand the God of Melchizedek. We also understand that a priest is only as good as the deity which he serves. And so this Melchizedek is not just some random priest to Baal or Belial. Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God. The same God that called Abram out of the Ur of Chaldees, which, by the way, it's interesting. Oftentimes when we hear of the story of Abram or Abraham being called out of Ur of Chaldees and coming to this this new, we we think, oh, this is it. This is the only place that God has interacted just with him. It's the only place that God is active in the life of Abraham. Don't we do that sometimes? Sometimes we think that God is just active in our lives. And then we come to find out, oh, wait a minute, there's another church? God's worked in other people's lives. Well, it's, it's interesting here. Sometimes we forget Abram isn't the only one called by God. Melchizedek is as well. Melchizedek is a servant. He is a priest of the Most High God. And so he is a priest and he is a king. He is a royal priest. This is the first time in the biblical narrative that we come across such a combination. We have seen and we will see kings. We have seen and we will see priests throughout the scriptures. But this is the first time that we come to understand someone that owns both the title priest and king. There's a similarity already you see between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ, the prince of peace, who is righteousness himself. Look at Hebrews 
7, 2, the second part of 2. He is first by translation of his name, speaking of Melchizedek, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem. That is, he's the king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. The name Melchizedek, what does it mean? It literally means king of righteousness. Or it could be said another way. It could be, could be saying, my king is righteous. That's what his name means. It's interesting that not only is Jesus the prince of peace, as the scriptures teach us, but here even in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, we read, you have loved righteousness, speaking of Jesus the Messiah. You have loved righteousness. You have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Again, we see Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. Seemingly a righteous king. And he stands similar to Jesus who also loved righteousness and hated wickedness. There's an interesting connection between righteousness and peace. Righteousness must be the basis of all true peace. This is what the scriptures teach us. You can't have peace without righteousness. One of the cries that we've heard uh, so regularly over the last 50 to 100 years is that we want peace in the Middle East, right? Well, there'll be no peace in the Middle East. And there'll be no peace in Hagerstown. There'll be no peace in your household without righteousness. In his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus our peace. He is righteous. He is our righteousness, Christian. And therefore, he is our peace. But back to Melchizedek. It says he is without father or mother or genealogy. What could this possibly mean? Well, there's several explanations. Some would say that this is a, a description of an angelic being. Someone that did not have the same sort of DNA that you do. Wasn't human at all. I don't believe that this is what it is saying. But it is saying that he didn't have a father or mother to speak of. And that's clarified by the fact that he doesn't have a genealogy. What's the point? He was an ordinary human like you and me. He was not chosen for priesthood. He hadn't become a priest because of his genealogy. He hadn't become a priest because of his mother and his father. He didn't become a priest because he was a Levite. Melchizedek was a priest not because of his father. He was a priest not because of his birth, but on, based on the call of God. Which is way different than how the Levitical priests had become priests, right? They became priests because they were of the line of Levi. And Jesus, we have no idea, or I'm sorry, Melchizedek, we have no idea who his father and mother were. We read in the book of Ezra, after the Jews return back to the homeland, after they return back to Jerusalem, they're trying to put things back in order. They're trying to reestablish the, the temple sacrifices and, and build back the walls as we read in Nehemiah. And they're trying to determine who can be the priests. Who's the high priest? Who can be the priest that makes sure that everything in the temple is back to normal? We're finally home. We're, we're back from, uh, uh, from, from, uh, from, from this imprisonment and this captivity. Let's get things back to normal. And so several priests step up and say, hey, I'm a Levite. I'll volunteer. I think I have the most seniority. I'll do this. And they're like, where are your papers at? Show us who your mother and father were. Seriously. In those days, they couldn't serve as a priest regardless of who they thought they were if they didn't have the documentation to prove that they really were of the line of Levi. It's so interesting here. We know nothing about Melchizedek. We don't know who his mother was. We don't know who his father was. We don't know who his ancestors are. We know he's a priest, though. And we know he's a priest of God Most High, El Elyon. And then the question really we ask is, so we've got two sorts of priests, right? We've got the order of the Levitical law, and then we've got the order of the, of, 
Melchizedek, whoever he is, one having genealogy, the other not. And so we ask the question, which is better? Which is better? The one who was in the line of Levi or the one who had a no-name mother and father? And really, the answer to that is found in verses 4 through 10. And so look at that with me. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarchs, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is, from their brothers, though these are also descendants of Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, in the case of the Levites. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Mel- or of his ancestor, singular, when Melchizedek met him. And here's where the, the, the first point is clearly being made. Which is better, Melchizedek or Levi? Which order is stronger? Which order is superior? Verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Abraham and all his line are lesser in authority because Abraham was lesser than Melchizedek. And a precedent is being set right before our eyes. It's a precedent that the writer of Hebrews is hearkening back to. He's reminding us of the Levites, according to the law, were to receive a tithe, a gift from all of Israel. Even the Levites that weren't priests had to pay a tithe to the priests. Regular humans giving tithes to regular humans that are of the Levitical line. But then there's this other guy who receives tithes from somebody, or from not just anybody. I love verse 4. In the Greek, it's actually, it puts the patriarch at the very end of the sentence. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. The identity of Abraham, the patriarch, this grand person, the most revered man to every Jew, he, that patriarch, paid tithes to who? To somebody outside of Israel? He paid tithes to somebody other than a Levite? Our patriarch did what? So the argument is made Abraham was subservient. He was inferior. And logic follows that where did Levi come from? Well, his great, great father, his great grandfather was Abram. And so because he, in a sense, is in the loins of his great grandfather, he paid tithes. He acted in a subservient way to this mysterious person, Melchizedek. Abraham and all his line, lesser in authority because Abraham was lesser than Melchizedek. And this isn't the first time and this isn't the last time that this sort of logic is, is used, that because he was in the loins of his ancestor, right? We see this uh, a couple times. What One I'll mention is Genesis chapter 25. It was said to Rebekah that two children, not, not, two, sorry, not two children, but two nations are in your womb. These are the progenitors of, of two nations, and they're both within Rebekah's body. We see that in Genesis chapter 25. Not two children, two people groups, two entire nations. But we see this again in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. Where the Apostle Paul says, in Adam all die. In Adam all die. 
Levi was included in the payment of, of the tithe. Why? Because in Abraham all paid tithes. Again, Abraham inferior to Melchizedek. Not on the same level. You might say, well, what do we do? Do we demote? We kind of sort of thought that this mysterious person, Melchizedek, was maybe on the same level as Abraham. What do we do? Do we demote Abraham? Well, that's not, what argue, that's not the argument that's being made. The argument is not that we demote Abraham, but that we promote, that we elevate Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews, a, a good Jew, is not saying, hey, think less of Abraham. It's saying, think more of Melchizedek. Think more of the priest with no mother. Think more of the priest with no father. Think more of him than you do the patriarch. Why? Because he paid tithes to him. He bowed to him. He offered of his own to this man after he was blessed. Now look back at verse 3, though. It says, he is without father or mother or genealogy. All of those stated in the negative. No father, no mother, no genealogy. And it says, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Here's what's happening here. We read this account, these few verses of Melchizedek. And we understand he has no father or mother. He just shows up on the scene and we don't really hear anything else about him. So many other important people in the Bible, we know when they were born. We know who their father, we know who their mother was. We know when they died, we know how they die. Melchizedek, we know nothing about. He just shows up and as mysteriously as he appears, he disappears. What does that lead the people of God, what does that lead people like us reading the scriptures long after to conclude? Well, something is special about this man. There's hints of eternity in his story. But here's what I want you to know. Melchizedek is not eternal. He is not eternal. But he does resemble the Son of God who is eternal. You see, Melchizedek only prefigures. He only foreshadows what Christ fulfills. Think about the relationship between Melchizedek and Jesus just as you would the, the, the smell of your coffee in the morning and the actual first sip of it. Maybe if you have been awakened from your slumber by the smell of coffee... You might think, hey, that smells wonderful. I now have a reason to get out of bed. And maybe your spouse or, your, or you yourself, having made the coffee before, preset the, uh, the timer, now it goes off. You smell the coffee brewing, and it gets you excited for what is to come. That's what we see in Melchizedek. You see the, the hint, the aroma of Christ, but not the substance of Christ. The reality is that there's been a lot of lore, a lot of story passed on regarding Melchizedek. Even around the time of Jesus' life, many people, many Jews had elevated Melchizedek to some angelic figure that would defeat Satan and, and the forces of evil in, in their day. The reality is that this man, Melchizedek, was simply a man. Who, a man who had become a myth. He prefigured a myth that would become a man. This man is not eternal. His life anticipates the appearance of a high priest who does not have any successor or predecessor. And that's the truth of Jesus. Who is truly like the great high priest, Jesus Christ? Who has no predecessor and no successor. Nobody before him and nobody after him. He remains a priest forever. And that's the lore of Melchizedek. We don't know when he came onto the scene. Who was the priest before? Who was the priest after? We don't know. And so this idea suspended in scriptures leads us to think he has the smell, the aroma of an eternal great high priest who again has no predecessor nor successor. Jesus is 
likened to, or Melchizedek is likened to Jesus. The point this morning that you probably already noticed is, is not that Melchizedek is better than Levi. We've just seen that. But the point is that Melchizedek is like Jesus, but Jesus is better than him. Jesus is superior to Melchizedek. Well, where did you get that at? That's the second sort of question that we're looking at this morning. Is Jesus superior to Melchizedek? The answer is absolutely yes. Melchizedek is mentioned twice in the Old Testament. The first we looked at was Genesis 14. The second time is in Psalm 110. This is a Psalm of David. I want to invite you to turn there. Psalm of David. David writing of the Messiah that would come uses the language of this great priest that had already been. Speaking of the Messiah, the psalmist prophesies, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We've already seen that in Hebrews chapter 1. But verse 2 The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Be the king. The king that reigns in Zion. Another name for Jerusalem. Rule with your mighty scepter. What is the mighty scepter? Righteousness. Verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. And how will they do so? In holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Of this promise, the Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You, Messiah, are a priest forever after the order of of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. David is prophesying in regard to the one who would crush the serpent's head. As we read about in Genesis chapter 3. He's prophesying about the one that would bring blessing to all the nations of the earth as we see in Genesis 12 and following and Genesis 15. He's the one who would reign forever on the messianic Davidic throne as we see in 1 and 2 Samuel. He's the one after the order of Melchizedek. He's not from the line of Levi. The Messiah, the Old Testament foretells, will be of the line of Judah, will be of the tribe of Judah. He can't trace his genealogy back to his Levitical mother and father. He's of the order of Melchizedek. It's kind of like him. Didn't have a predecessor, doesn't have a successor, and he doesn't list out his genealogy. It doesn't work. He's not a priest because he's a Levite. His authority does not come from the law. He is the king of righteousness and he reigns in peace. He has no one before. He has no one after. And so which is better, Melchizedek or Jesus? They're very similar. Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. Well, the answer to which is better is in verse 3 of chapter 7. And so look back. Look back at verse 3 of chapter 7. There's a very, very important word there. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Helping us to understand the importance of that word resembling is a commentator I want to quote for you this morning. He says this, The real key to the writer's exegetical method is found in the phrase, resembling the Son of God. The word translated resembling only occurs here in the New Testament. It is a suggestive word used in the active of a facsimile, copy, or model. 
and in the passive of being made similar to. It is because Jesus Christ is of the order of Melchizedek that the representative of the order is seen to be a model of the truth. Now that's, that's kind of up there, right? But he, he says it in other words. Here it is. In other words, it is Christ's priesthood that is the standard, not that of Melchizedek. Who's the standard? How are we to understand Melchizedek? Through the lens of Melchizedek or through the lens of the Messiah who is Jesus Christ? The writer says that Melchizedek is made like the Son of God. Not that the Son of God is like Melchizedek. So who sets the pattern here? The Messiah. The Christ. He sets the pattern. Jesus sets the pattern. And who follows that pattern? Melchizedek does. He's only a prophetic shadow, if you will. Even the lore built up around him, it only serves to illustrate a longing that we all had deep in our heart, our hearts. A longing for not just the aroma of Christ, but the substance of Christ. And where does the aroma of Christ come from? But from the substance. The aroma is just a hint of reality. It's just a bit of a story. It's a lore that we enjoy, but there's nothing to it more than what it prefigures. In Hebrews, Melchizedek, he's not a redeemer. He offers no sacrifice that we know of. He doesn't mediate on behalf of us. And while he's thought in a mythological sense to be eternal, he's not done anything for you other than to whet your appetite for the real substance of this promise, and that is Jesus. The scriptures teach us that Jesus is eternal. He does not have anyone before him and not anyone after. Why? Because he reigns and rules as a royal priest for all of eternity, time past and future. But what has this king accomplished? As we make a turn in the sermon, I want you to think about this thing. The fact that Jesus is eternal speaks of time. But it doesn't speak of the nature or even the substance that is that time. That's, that's, that's comprised in that time space. Here's what I mean by that. You might say, I'm going on a trip with my sister and my sister is very annoying. Well, how long will you have to be with this annoying sister? Well, how long's the trip? Well, it's nine hours. Well, that's nine hours with an annoying sister. Well, why is she annoying? Because she does this and she does that and she does this. In a similar way, we understand Jesus. Not that he's annoying, but we understand that there is a timepiece. It's not nine hours, but it's all of eternity. But what has been accomplished? What is the substance? We know the substance will last for all of eternity, but what is the substance? What has been accomplished by this great high priest who will reign for all eternity after the order of Melchizedek? Well, to get the answer of that, to that question, we have to go back to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16. So turn back. You've got this great high priest who's sort of like Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is way better than the Levites, but Jesus is way better than Melchizedek. But what has Jesus actually done, this eternal king? Well, look at chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16. It says, since then, we have a great high priest, great high priest, greater than Melchizedek. What has this great high priest done? He has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, since we have him, hold fast to our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. But listen to this. But one who in every way has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is without sin for all eternity. That's good news. We need a high priest who is without sin for all of eternity. You look at Aaron and Moses. They were not without sin. You go back to even Levi, who was one of the brothers there and voted yea to throw Joseph into a pit. Was he without sin? Absolutely not. 
But what about this king? What about this priest after the order of Melchizedek? Yes, he is without sin. And in what way? For how long? For all eternity. And what does that cause us to do? To hold fast, to draw near to the throne of grace. Why? So that we can receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. How long is this priest going to be able to offer us mercy and grace in our time of need? For all eternity. For all of eternity. How long will the Levitical priest that's in office today, how long will he be able to accomplish what he's set up to do? As long as he lives? So long as there's a temple? So long as, the, as the, their enemies have not come and conquered them and taken them away, that's how long. And Jesus is far greater than that. He ever lives to provide mercy and grace for us in time of need. Think about that. Why is Jesus such a great high priest? Because he's eternal. His sacrifice is ever effective. That's chapter 4. Now jump back to... Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18 and 20. This is right before we jump into chapter, uh, chapter 7, and this is right after the, the writer, the, the pastor here, has given the warning about paying attention. He says, starting in halfway through 18, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Why? Well, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters in behind the place, behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest forever. And what does that mean? That means he is sure. That means the offer that we declare, the offer that you hold to this morning that if you turn from your sins and if you trust in Jesus, that that offer of salvation is sure. Not only is it sure, but it's steadfast. That speaks to time. That speaks to the fact that that offer of salvation, that promise of the Messiah will never expire. It will always be in season. Why? Because he is a high priest after the order of of Melchizedek. Friend, the deepest longing of your heart is that the good times, the times of peace, that they'll never end. Or that those times will come back and they'll stay. And the reality is, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's good news. And it's true in Jesus. I want you to think back to the Garden of Eden. And as you think about the Garden of Eden, I want you to think about the temple. You see, the temple is where God dwelt. And so was the garden. And inside of the garden, God had placed Adam and Eve. And in a sense, Adam was a king. He was to rule and have dominion. That's the language of a king. And he's there ruling in the garden. And what is he doing? Well, he is to be fruitful and multiply. He's to populate the earth. He's to sort of be the, the high priest in a sense, mediating in a sense between God and man. But what happens there in that garden? That first priest, as it were, he led us out of the garden. In Adam's sin, we all died. We were all in his loins. And we all died. And so that first priest, he led us out. But then in his kindness, God gives us a picture of what he's going to do in the great high priest who's coming after the order of Melchizedek. He gives us the Levitical law. He gives us the temple. And he says, he gives us the tabernacle before that. And he says, hey, this is where I'm going to dwell. This is where I'm at. And I'm going to set up some priests. And these priests are going to mediate. They're going to pray. They're going to bless. They're going to lead. They're going to offer sacrifices. And you're going to pay a tithe to them 
And all this is going to prefigure, all this is going to testify to what I am going to do with the great high priest that's coming after the order of Melchizedek. And it is he who will lead you not out of the presence of God, but back into the presence of God. He will be your sure and steady anchor for the soul that you'll never, ever be cast out of the garden again. You'll be brought in by this high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Do you catch that? Adam has led us out and Jesus is going to lead us back in. The Garden of Eden is the fulfillment of every point and desire of your heart. Leaving Eden is your greatest fear and it's been realized. But Jesus has promised in his eternality, in the effectiveness of his sacrifice, the great high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, he has promised to lead us back in. And that promise is eternal. It'll never fade. I I don't know where you're at this morning, but I imagine that you've got some desires. I, I imagine that you've got some fears and that you've got some longings. And maybe this is the first time that you've been hearing anything like this before, but everything that you face, whether it be sex or money or power or any of the like, all of those roads are an attempt to get back into Eden because you were created for that. You were created to experience great joy and fulfillment that can only be filled by the presence of God. And yet you've been cut off from that. And Adam, we've all died and we've all tried in our own way, according to our own pleasures, our own desires, to get back to that place where it will be good, where it will be happy and happy forevermore, ever after. And yet any way aside from Christ, this great high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, is a dead end. It's a further wandering away from that great peace, that garden of Shalom, Eden. I don't know where you're at, but again, I just want to throw this out. I want to give the invitation for you this morning. If you're far from God and you're longing to feel your fears dispelled and your your, your deepest desires met, I promise you, you'll find that in this great high priest. After the order of Melchizedek. Who, as an, who is an anchor for the soul back into the holy place, back into the presence of God from which we were cast out. Today, would you turn to Jesus? Would you call your sin exactly what God calls it? Dead and empty roads. Empty pathways that lead to destruction. And would you trust Jesus this morning? Turn from your sin and turn to this great high priest. It's eternal. It's a good deal. This is the fulfillment of everything we want in church. If you're here today and you say, I've been tempted this morning to think that the things of this life that draw my gaze away are as good or even better than Jesus, repent and turn back. Let your confidence be restored that he is the great high priest and his blessings are extended to us in the future and forevermore. Think about this. This is the main idea. The main idea. Your greatest fear and your deepest longings are both resolved in the eternality of Jesus Christ. Your greatest fear and your deepest longings are both resolved in the eternality of Jesus Christ. Where when we are with him, we will say, I just want to stay right here in this moment forever. And that just won't be our hope. That will be our reality. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that this is true. That though we in our sins have been separated from you, we've received a promise. That if we place our hope in Christ, that priest who leads us back into your presence, back into the garden where we were created to abide with you, we'll turn to him, we will be reunited with you. Father, we pray that you would help us to not lose hope of that. Father, help us to not lose sight of that. That your promises of salvation are eternal. 
will have everything that our hearts have ever wanted and more. The true fulfillment of our desires will be met in Christ for all of eternity. Father, for the ones that this morning who have never seen this truth, that the good news is that we can have these desires fulfilled righteously in a way that give us peace. Would they see that this morning? It's true through Christ. Father, I know that you are wooing and you're drawing some of this group to your son, Jesus. He's been lifted up today. But this morning they come to you in faith. Lay hold of this promise that we can enter into your presence boldly, unafraid, that you'll cast us out, but knowing that our deepest desire to be restored with you, to have pleasures forevermore in your presence, will never be taken away from that. But we see that in Jesus. We ask all of these things in your name. Amen.